As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he rejoiced, then he brought them up into his house and set before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Through the book of Acts, and we've been asking, what does it mean to be a faithful people following God? And today, one of the things that I think we see from this passage in Acts chapter 16 is that to be part of the faithful people of God is to understand that the answer to any time that we need rescue is to understand the answer to be the answer that Paul gives to the Philippian jailer, which is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Now, we sometimes hear that and understand it in a way that I think is a little bit at odds with how it's presented to us in the chapter, and we'll come to that. But to prepare ourselves to enter into the chapter, I'd like for you to think for a moment upon what does it mean, what is the effect of believing in the gospel? What is the power of the resurrection of Jesus played out in your life? Well, the New Testament uses some pretty powerful metaphors to describe that. We were once were slaves, but now are free. We once lived in darkness, but now we live in light. We were once asleep. Now we are awake. We were once dead. Now we are alive. Those are pretty monumental transitional statements about how one moves from a certain place 
through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and being unified to him by faith and comes out at another place. Is that your experience? Would you say, oh, absolutely, once I was dead and now I'm alive, and once I was blind but now I see? And I think to some extent we would all say yes, but I think to another extent we would also say, you know, faith doesn't feel quite that decisive. It feels like a bit of a slog day in and day out, following Jesus faithfully, trying to pursue him in righteousness, believing that he has the best for me. And it's in the midst of... uh, going through this slog and following Jesus and deciding what, how powerful the gospel is that we are confronted with this story. And what, what I want to suggest to you by the time we're done today is that sometimes we don't feel like the gospel or experience, feel that it's powerful or experience the power of the gospel because in, in large extents we're really not believing that the gospel is the answer to our problems. All right? We'll come back to that as we start to wind down. But before we get there, we're going to consider the three characters in our passage. In our passage, there are three people or groups of people who meet Jesus for the first time, and each of them has a very different reaction to the person of Christ. One is the slave girl. One is the owners of the slave girl. And third is the Philippian jailer. We're going to take them in turn. And even as we go through, I'm going to challenge you to ask yourself, do I have anything in common with this character? Maybe at the end you need to ask, which character do I have the most in common with? And so we begin with the slave girl. A sad situation, a a girl who is uh, possessed by a spirit and uh, being controlled by some handlers, some owners who employ her ability to foretell the future, to profit from her. In verse 16, it says uh, of the girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. Now, it's through this spirit of uh, divination, and literally, it's actually, it says that she has a python spirit, which might seem a little bit odd to us, but made complete sense in the context of what is happening. The python spirit represented uh, the god Apollo. Apollo was thought to dwell in the form of a python in the temple in Delphi. And so to be uh, enabled or possessed by the spirit of Apollo was to be possessed or enabled by the python spirit. And that's what the text calls her or says she's possessed by, the python spirit. And it's through the spirit that she's able to perceive the future to some extent. We see this even being applied to Paul. She has a certain degree of clarity perhaps. In verse 17, she starts following Paul and Silas around as they're preaching and says, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now we hear that and we have to be careful because we have certain lenses and we hear things in certain ways. We hear that and we think, oh, the Most High God, well, that's the God of Israel. And the way of salvation, well, that's faith through Jesus Christ. Well, that, that isn't what the people who are standing around and hearing this would have heard. Right? In a Greco-Roman context, the Most High God is Zeus, And the way of salvation is rescue from whatever is is challenging you at any given moment. If I I can't conceive the way of salvation is for uh, Zeus or Apollo or whoever to grant me a child. If if my business is failing, the way of salvation is for this God to remedy the hardship in my business. That's what people would have heard with the slave girl just walking around saying, uh, you know, these men proclaim the most high God 
who proclaimed to you the way of salvation. So you can imagine why Paul gets annoyed. Her proclamation, even though from one perspective may be accurate, is confusing and would have led people in different directions and is tripping Paul up probably to some extent because by the time you get to verse uh, 17, 18, Paul has become greatly annoyed with the girl. In verse 18, he says, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. Now, the, the slave girl is the first person in our story to meet Jesus. And Jesus shows up, and the command, right, in Jesus' name that Paul issues drives out the spirit, the python spirit of Apollo from her so that she is liberated. She is freed from that which has possessed her and taken control of her. Now, the text doesn't tell us what happens to the slave girl. Wouldn't it be interesting to know? Did she become a follower of Jesus? Did her owners try to, um, did they beat her because they were no longer making money from her? We don't know what happens in her story, but what we do have from Luke is a picture that Jesus liberates, that Jesus trumps all other gods and sets free those who are oppressed. And there are some of you this morning who are oppressed. You're in bondage, and it may not be by a spirit, but it may be through addiction. It may be through some substance or some activity that you feels like control that you feel that controls you. And you're also, or even if you're beyond it, you might be tempted to go back to that. And the first thing that Luke shows us is that Jesus liberates all those who are oppressed. And so if you are oppressed this morning, I would invite you to at least consider that perhaps Jesus is the answer. Perhaps he can liberate you from the bondage that you've been experiencing and found yourself in. This is encounter number one. Encounter number two are the owners. The owners have witnessed what has occurred. The slave girl has been freed from the spirit of divination. And in verse 19, it says, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Even though the owners were exposed to the power of Jesus, right? In, a, in an ancient context, you've just witnessed a throwdown between the God of Paul and Silas and the God of the Python spirit. It's Jesus and Apollo taking the gloves off, and Jesus has decidedly won. So you might think in an ancient context, if you're the owner, you might take a step back and say, I worship Apollo, but he didn't fare very well in this encounter. Maybe I should actually listen and hear what Paul and Silas have to say about this figure, Jesus. But they can't. They're too blind. They love something too much. They love something way more than Apollo. And what's that? Their profit. Right? They're upset that the girl, their money-making machine, has been taken away. And so they proceed to drag Paul and Silas before the magistrates and then proceed to have the town worked up against them. Now, some of you have something in common with the slave girl. You find your likeness there. But some of you find your likeness in the owners of the slave girl. See, the owners have been exposed to the power and authority of Jesus, but they're not that interested. They move quickly on to what they're most interested in and what they most love, which is their profit margin. And some of you, you, you may 
give lip service to being interested in Jesus. Some of you express some degree of faith, but is not the majority of your week really about your profit margin? Really about what you love way more than Jesus? It may not be money. It could be any number of things. But if you were to reflect seriously upon your own heart and you just look back over the last week, how much time did you spend thinking about Jesus? And how much time did you think spend thinking about other things? Work, friends, status. Right? Would your own thought life, would your own discipline in your life and how you order the events of your week reveal that you are truly a lover of Jesus or would it reveal that you're a bit more like the owners and that yes, you've been exposed to Jesus but you're really only interested in Jesus when A, you think you need help or B, you're pretty sure he's interested in what you're interested in. That's character number two, the owners of the slave girl. The third, we come to the best part and it's the best part Ultimately, it's the Philippian jailer. But even before you get to the Philippian jailer, it's the best part because you've got, you've got crisis. And Jesus always does his best work in the midst of crisis. You've got two crises. We have to take them in turn. The first crisis is the crisis of Paul and Silas. Now, why are Paul and Silas in crisis? As the slave girl has just correctly identified, Paul and Silas serve the most high God. That most high God has just thrown down Apollo and the python spirit, right, in an, in an absolutely decisive victory, which has led in turn for Paul and Silas to be stripped, beaten with rods, and thrown into prison. Where did that most high God go? Where did that God with all the authority and power go in terms of being for Paul and Silas? Now, you can imagine what may have gone through Paul's mind. And even if it doesn't go through Paul's mind, I think it would go through our mind, which is, uh, God, are you for me or against me? Right? You seem a little bipolar because we get to do really cool things like cast out the python spirit, but then you throw me in jail. And are you, are you, you can show up any time here. We would love for you to intervene. Right? We know these questions, right? In the midst of our suffering, where we might take a step back from God and say, God, you're not treating me well. You really, you say you love me and that you're all powerful, but I can sense nor perceive either. And like the psalmist at various times who prays, God, are you asleep? Where are you? Now, astonishingly, this certainly would be my, more my voice in this, exper in this experience, but it's not the voice of Paul and Silas, is it? You look at verse 25, it says about midnight, Paul and Silas are praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. It's midnight. I can't remember the last time I saw midnight. Right? Why would you be awake at midnight? Probably because your wounds hurt so bad you couldn't possibly sleep. And so in the midst of that, they decide to worship. You know, the notion, I don't think we would say to ourselves, you know, I just got caned. Let's have a prayer and praise night. Right? There would be a lot more wrestling, but this is what we see Paul and Silas putting on display that they find themselves in a posture of worship even in the midst of their suffering. And 
We, we have to say two quick things. One is, this is one of so many New Testament passages that makes the health and wealth gospel ridiculous. Now I see that the, the fastest growing gospel, make no mistake, in the, in the world today is the health and wealth gospel. It is everywhere because it promises if you are obedient, you will be materially blessed. And for so many people in the world who live in poverty, they desire, I want to be materially blessed and I'm willing to be obedient for that. The inverse, of course, is if you're suffering, it's because of something you've done. But here we see Paul and Silas being absolutely obedient and pursuing righteousness, and as a result of that, they're suffering. It turns that notion on its head. And if you have that tendency to sometimes gravitate in that direction to think, oh, I'm being obedient, so I should be blessed, or I'm suffering, therefore I must be being punished, those aren't very biblical conclusions. It's not that those questions can't be asked, and in some cases they may be appropriate, but they can't be the default. And we should never expect a certain kind of material blessing for obedience, nor should we expect that God is making us suffer as a result of our disobedience. So health and wealth is turned on its head, but the second thing that must be said about Paul and Silas is to simply ask the question, what must be true for them to sing and praise God in the midst of their suffering? Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm honest with myself, I think, I think to myself, it's very hard for me to believe that I would be doing what they're doing. And so, if that's true, Paul and Silas must have something that I don't. And what must be at least true, right, for them to be in that posture is that they have a radical trust in God. Right? It's the only way that, in the midst, can you imagine? <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do if this occurred in my house, that a child in the midst of punishment or suffering and crying and being in pain decided to praise me as father right can you imagine this in the act of discipline when your child is so frustrated with what's going that they turned to actually worship or give thanks for your your paternal influence right I can't even imagine but this is what we see Paul and Silas doing which means they have radical and complete trust in what God is doing can they see the whole story no they cannot do they know what their outcome in jail is Mm-hmm. Right? They don't know what's going to happen, but they trust that God is writing a story that is bigger than their experience in that given moment, and they're willing to worship in the midst of their suffering because they believe that at some, some capacity God is going to bring this to resolution. And indeed, that's what he does. Now, we would all wish for our suffering, and particularly those for you, of you who are in hard seasons of suffering, right, that, the, that the resolution would come so quickly. And sometimes it, it just simply doesn't. Sometimes the resolution doesn't even come to our knowledge. Right? We, aren't, we aren't allowed to, be, to receive that notion of, oh, this is what was all going on. But I think Luke gives us a story, right? Or God gives it to us as an encouragement, a reminder that even though we don't necessarily see all of that or invited into that, that doesn't mean that it's not happening. And so the second crisis is the Philippian jailer himself. So, Paul and Silas are thrown into jail, put into stocks and bonds, and uh, everything is locked up. An earthquake miraculously occurs, which results in the doors being open and the chains falling off, and the prisoners are all set free, at which point you would assume that you would head straight for the door, right? Let's make, who knows what's going to happen next? Let's run. They don't run, but the jailer doesn't know this. The jailer comes in, it's dark, it's the middle of the night. And he assumes that everyone's fled. He therefore makes a fairly logical conclusion given his circumstance, which is, I'm going to die anyway for failing to 
uh, keep all the prisoners in jail. And I might be able to give myself a bit more merciful death than the Romans are going to give me. As well, he might re- uh, preserve some honor for his family and taking responsibility for what has happened uh, by taking his life with the sword. Both of those are probably in play. And the jailer is ready to take his life with a sword when Paul yells out, hey, you don't have to do that. We're all here. Now the jailer at this point realizes the prisoners are there, but everyone's still free. And given the story, we have to assume that he's radically overnumbered, outnumbered by the prisoners. And so he declares in verses 29 and 30, and the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and said, sirs, What must I do to be saved? Now, I think in a a little bit wrongly, we we sometimes read this and we hear, oh, the the jailer's decided to convert and he wants to know how to receive Jesus. He's ready to pray the sinner's prayer. I think a better reading is is probably not quite that the jailer is at that point. We We don't have any indication that Paul and Silas have preached to the jailer. Now, the jailer may have overheard some of the singing and worshiping. We don't know. But it's very hard to imagine that at this point, the jailer has already put together, right, that his entire Greco-Roman pantheon is wrong and that his real problem is that there's a God, Yahweh, and he's distanced from that God and put out of relationship by a notion of sin and that sin needs to be remedied by believing in the Messiah who is God in the flesh and died on the cross and raised again three days later. To the point that he would say, okay, I'm ready to be saved. Furthermore, notice, notice in verse uh, 31 after um, Paul is going to answer the jailer's question by saying, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And it's only after that that Luke notes that Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him. And then the conversion of him and his household occurs. So really what I think you, you see happening here in the midst of this story is the jailer is ready to take his own life. Paul says, you don't have to do that. We're still here. The jailer does some quick math, right? Everybody's still free. I'm in big trouble. I'm going to lose my life to the Romans if any of these people run. And my family's going to be left to destitution because I won't be around to provide for them. And so when the jailer says, what must I do to be saved? It is a very basic question. I'm in a very bad predicament here. What needs to happen here for me to be rescued from what potentially is about to happen, which is that you would flee? How can this situation be remedied? I find myself in a, in a, in a desperate, desperate place. Paul, you seem to be the leader here. What needs to happen for this to be remedied? for there to be resolution. And that's what makes Paul's answer so astonishing. Because the jailer is asking what needs to be happening here for for me to get out of this desperate situation, and Paul doesn't answer his question. Not directly. It It doesn't fit the Philippian jailer's question as the question is occurring in his mind. Because the answer is not what should you do, it's it's who. The answer is Believe in the Lord Jesus and you and your household will be saved. And the, you know, you can almost imagine the jailer being like, okay, let me ask that again. Right? Let's, go, let's go over this another time. 
Right? But it does proceed to his salvation, that he comes then to learn the story of Jesus, to understand it more fully. But what you see in the context of the story is a man who's in utter crisis, and Paul, knowing his crisis, doesn't want to tell him how to get out of his crisis. He wants to tell him what matters here is that you believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And I think then one of the applications or or things that we should come away with from this passage is that we all find ourselves in crises from time to time. We have all asked the question, what must I do to be rescued from this situation? Crises of health, crises of job, crises of parenting, crises of marriage, crises of depression, crises of, uh, of identity. Who am I and what am I, what's my purpose? Over and over again, right? Lot, no shortage of crises. But is not Paul suggesting to us that the answer to any question of crises is always first and foremost, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And that doesn't necessarily explain to you the exact remedy of the crisis you may be experiencing. But it explains to you the remedy of the crises that underlies all crises. I might give you an example as we, as we wind down. I was listening to uh, a talk given by a woman named Janine Shepard, who's really, in many ways, a very remarkable woman. She was uh, an elite Olympic athlete in cross-country skiing for Australia. I did not know Australia had a cross-country skiing team but apparently there are both mountains and snow in Australia. And she was part of this team and, and superbly accomplished, right? Really a, st- a remarkable um, human athlete. And she was training for the winter games in, uh, I think it was in Calgary. That seems long, one of the winter games. She was out on a long bike ride in the Blue Mountains of Australia with her team. It had been a five and a half hour ride. They were coming to the end. They had about 10 minutes left to go. And she was uh, broadsided by a utility truck, which um, quite literally just smashed her body. Uh, Broken bones everywhere. Uh, Ribs, collarbone, arms, scalp fractured, spine crushed. Right, Um, Massive bleeding externally and internally. They care-flighted her to the hospital. She said that um, she would need five liters of blood, which is about how much her body held. And that when they got there, her blood pressure was 40 over zero. And they thought, you're not going to make it. But they started working on her, and she um, somewhat stabilized, but her internal bleeding would go on for 10 days. And she described these 10 days as this argument she had kind of internally on this kind of psycho-spiritual realm of one half of her was saying, uh, your body is done. There is no future for you. Let's call it a day. And the other side of her would say, uh, no, there's a future. We, we need to start fighting. And so on, she, as she tells the story, she said, on day 10, I decided to start living, and the internal bleeding stopped. And she started a six-month stay in the hospital. Um, of course, initially she thought, you know, what do I need to do to get back on my skis? And the doctors would have to say, you're, you don't understand. You're, you're severely damaged. You're never going, you may, you probably won't walk again and you're definitely not going to ski again. And so you can, you know, you can imagine the long road, the depression, the hardship and all of this. And, and it it even gets worse when she gets home, which they warned her in the spinal unit, uh, in the hospital she was in. They said, you know, you're doing okay here. When you get home, the depression is really going to sit in. She's like, no, I'm good. 
So they know in the spinal ward what you're experiencing is normal. Everybody's experiencing it. When you go home, you're going to realize that life has changed dramatically and how far you are from being able to do the things you used to do, and you're going to become horribly depressed, and that's exactly what happens. Long story short, one day she's sitting in her home in her wheelchair, and she sees a plane fly over head, and she says to herself, uh, that's it. I'm going to be a pilot. And she shows up in half a body cast to the local flight school and says, I, I want to fly. And they look at her and think, you're crazy. But they take her up and, you know, they <laughs> first question is, do you want to control the plane taxiing with the foot pedals? And she's like, no, I have no use of my legs. Uh, can I do something else? So they go up and they let her fly the plane a little bit. But she's hooked. And she goes, uh, she trains and she becomes a pilot and then gets her uh, bad weather instrument rating. And she gets her instructor rating. And she gets her aerobatic. She learns to fly upside down. She gets her aerobatic rating, right? And continues to do better physically so that she has some health. And, and so um, comes to this place where she feels like she has remade herself. She was in a crisis. She said, how can I possibly be rescued from this situation? And this is how she looks back on it, what she says. But then I knew for certain that although my body might be limited, it was my spirit that was unstoppable. The philosopher Lao Tzu once said, when you let go of what you are, you become what you might be. I now know that it wasn't until I let go of who I thought I was that I was able to create a completely new life. It wasn't until I let go of the life I thought I should have that I was able to embrace the life that was waiting for me. I now know that my real strength never came from my body, and although my physical capabilities have changed dramatically, who I am is unchanged. The pilot light inside of me was still a light, just as in each and every one of us. Man, what a, what a bold statement of the glory of human potential and our ability to reinvent ourselves. It's a story that we tell ourselves all the time. Here's um, uh, Janine Shepard, totally laid out, uh, crushed in her body, and she, she decides, I'm not going to let this beat me. I'm going to rise above it. I'm going to apply myself and become disciplined and learn something new and remake myself. And now I have a new identity. And in my body, that's not who I am. It's the inquenchable, unstoppable spirit that drives me. And I think there's a lot to respect there, right? Janine has really pushed herself to find a way forward in the midst of crushing defeat, right? It's kind of the soul-stealing disability. But at the same time, is that, is that the hope? That we, at the end of the day, have the ability always to reinvent ourselves and remake ourselves because we're more than our body and our spirits are unquenchable, and as I listened to her story, I couldn't help but think, man, what would you say to someone who is severely disabled and didn't have all the, the, the ability of their mind? Or what would you say to yourself if you ended up a quadriplegic rather than a paraplegic and you couldn't fly at all? And isn't this a little bit favoring a certain, you know, you can learn to fly because you're educated, your parents were utterly committed to seeing you through 18 months of rigorous rehab. You had the money for flight school and the aptitude for it. What if something happens now and you can't fly anymore? Do you reinvent your identity again? Right, this, is, this is a very, very Western humanist story right, that we, whenever we ask the question, 
how am I to be saved? How am I to be rescued? Right? Our knee-jerk reaction is, well, I'll save myself. I will apply myself, elbow grease, right? intentionality. I'll order what needs to be ordered. I'll stop doing what needs to stop. You know, I will make myself better and forge myself into this. And I think that the older you get, the more you realize that, that that's, that's a lie. Right? The ability to remake oneself, to actually rescue oneself, isn't, is ultimately limited and it certainly doesn't answer the true remedy, the true salvation that is necessary. This is what makes me think about how often when we think to ourselves, I need to be saved. How can I be rescued from this situation? How often we begin our answer with what? This is what I need to do. This is what needs to happen. This is what my kids or my spouse need to do. This is what, what, what. And when the jailer's ready to take his life and he says, who's going to save me? Or he says, what shall save me? How can I be saved from this situation? Paul's answer isn't what, it's who. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. No. That doesn't necessarily give us all the details we would want to every crisis that we find ourselves in. But it's the right question with which to begin. Because if we've begun with that question, then all other answers eventually fall into place. And we find ourselves not in a place saddled with addiction like the slave girl, nor do we find ourselves in a place like the owners who love things more than a person. But we find ourselves in the place of Paul and Silas who understand that they are so deeply loved by the living God that even in the midst of their suffering, they know their salvation comes from a person and they decide to worship him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you this day because we believe that it is through you that our salvation comes. We ask that you would forgive us. So often when we ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Our answer begins with our own efforts and our answers begin with a list of what we should do and what needs to change. In reality, in any crisis that we might find ourselves and ask the question, what must I do to be saved? The answer is to believe. To believe not in some statement or proposition, but to believe in a person. And so we come to you this morning at your table asking that you would encourage us in our faith, that you would build us up, that you would cause our faith to grow deeper and wider, and as a result of that, uh, to move out in a way that we worship in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves, always seeking to draw near to you in the midst of it. We ask that you would meet us here at this table. In Christ's name we pray.